In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Aren't you glad that doesn't say once upon a time? Whatever we're getting into in Genesis here, it is the beginning of the story. The beginning matters. When C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote several of those chronicles. But then, later on, after he had written four of them, I believe, he felt the need to go back and write the beginning of the story. He went back and wrote The Magician's Nephew, which was the creation story of Narnia. He had to help give context to the rest of the stories and help some of those stories make sense because the beginning matters. How something starts matters in the beginning. Aren't you also glad it doesn't say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? I don't know what your opinion of the prequel three movies are, um, but those are not the beginning of the story. They went back and gave a little bit more context to the original three movies, but they didn't answer a lot of the questions. They didn't give the full story. We still don't know where the Jedi came from, who they are, the Sith, what the Force really is, or what that Darksaber is. We don't know those things yet, because we don't know the beginning of the story. You can tell we were watching The Mandalorian yesterday. Can you imagine if you parachuted into American history at this point in time? And you didn't know how America started. If you didn't understand what the Constitution is, or why we have one, or what the roles of government are, and what their limitations are. Maybe it's not hard to imagine someone who doesn't understand those things. Uh, But the beginning matters. Our Bible does not start in the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the church age. Our Bible does not start in the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus comes to earth and fulfills the things from the Old Testament. Our Bible does not begin with the law. Our Bible does not begin with the the calling out of God's chosen people in Abraham. No, our Bible begins at the beginning. We understand how everything started and when and why and by whom everything started, then we understand life. And that's what we want to set out to do this morning as we look at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Pray with me as we begin this. God, we thank you for being the giver of life. We've stated that already this morning, and we, many of us know that and believe that already. We pray that as we look at that this morning in Genesis 1 and 2, we would see you as the giver of life, See you in your greatness and glory, and we'd also understand then what life is supposed to be like, how we are supposed to live. We pray that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We look at Genesis 3 this morning. We're going to look at the three, sorry, Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at the three different creation reports, and then we're going to look at three ways that, three components of what that tells us what life is supposed to be like. Three components for original life. Now, when I say three creation reports, I'm not talking about Genesis describing creation in three different ways as if there were contradiction between those things. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. There are three types of reports here, and they are complementary. They work together. 
we're going to see there's this short opening statement where God states clearly he is the, the creator of all things. Then we're going to get into the more detailed daily report of creation, the rest of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. And then we get to chapter 2 and we see this focused, zoomed-in details uh, of the pinnacle of God's creation, man. So those three different things, we're going to look at each of those uh, and then understand what are those three implications from that. These are three different reports, and I believe this is a historical account. This is the way that God says it happened, and this is the way it did happen. Because it is historical, this is an actual account, we are reading our Bible literally. We're going to pay attention to what the grammar actually says in a historical context. So it's called a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic interpretation of Scripture. Look at this first report with me. The first report is this opening statement. I already read it with you. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's what one commentator I referenced described as just this magisterial statement. This is a, a grand statement that God is making here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is giant in scope. It is saying everything that was created is being talked about right here. The heavens and the earth. The Hebrew language doesn't have a word for universe. So he's saying heavens and earth, that's everything. Everything that has been created is being referenced here. It's the beginning. This is the beginning of time itself. The creation of time itself. Time that affects everything that we do began right here. This is a major thing. And it is happening by someone who is outside of creation. God created things. He's not creation. There's something greater than everything that we see. Is God himself. He stands outside of creation. So this is a grand statement in just a few words. It is one of the biggest statements in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even as I describe it now, I fear that I am underselling the importance of what God is saying here. God is being bold. He's planting his flag at the beginning. He is the creator. He created all things in the beginning. It's an an immediate challenge to almost every form of unbelief that exists. The beginning. This is a, a linear time here. There was a beginning and there will be an end. This is not a cyclical rotation of time like it's so common in Eastern philosophies. It's a challenge to that right away. In the beginning, God. God, there is a God. Challenge to all the varieties of unbelief, atheism and agnosticism. Very clearly stated, there is a God. He created, not evolution. This is creation at the beginning. And also a distinction between God and the creation itself, which challenges the pantheistic view that everything is God and we are a part of God. That is not entertained here. It is immediately challenged up front. And this is all about God. God is the focus of these chapters. He's the, he's the main character here. This is in the beginning God. It doesn't jump straight to the details of creation. This is not just an apologetic text where we go to defend what we believe about creation versus evolution or the age of the earth or things like that. It's, it's a very instrumental text for our apologetic, but this is not primarily what it's about. This is primarily about God. If we get the details of creation and the age of the earth right, but we miss God, then we're missing the point of this text. This is about God, that the greatness, the power, the creative wisdom of God are meant to be seen here. 
we sang about this through all the songs that we, we sang this morning. I want to understand a little bit more of what is on display. I'm going to borrow a little bit from the next section, uh, but seeing that the patterns of what is on display of God here, the Trinity is on display. We read verse one that God created, but then we get to verse two, we're immediately told the spirit is involved. The spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Down in verse 26, we're told God said to himself, let us make man in our own image. There's a plurality there. There's this idea of the Trinity of three personhoods and one God. And then we understand from the rest of Scripture that Jesus Christ himself is involved in creation. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And it's important that he's being described here as the Word of God in John chapter 1, because the Word is exactly how we're told God creates in Genesis 1. God creates by word of mouth. The Latin word is by fiat. It's not the Italian car. It's by fiat, by spoken word. God's word has power. God's word does what it is meant to do. I can say the same thing that God does here. He says, let there be light, and nothing happens, right? What happens when God says, let there be light? There is light. God creates by his words. His words have power. And I referenced that in a sermon a while ago, talking about uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. God's word has power to do in our lives what it's meant to do. This is also what's described in Isaiah chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word has power. Another description that we'll see as we read the rest of the account is that God creates what we call ex nihilo, another Latin phrase. He creates out of nothing. Not only does he say, let there be, and it happens, but he's creating from nothing. He says, let there be light. And where there was nothing, there now is something. And I don't, I don't think we can really comprehend this. This is a radical idea. We only ever understand creating with existing materials. Any, any creative process we go through was using God's existing raw materials. Uh, and I Again, I fear I'm underselling the, the magnitude of God being able to speak into existence what was not there before, creating by fiat and creating ex nihilo. This is why we say just a little bit ago, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? What other splendor outshines the sun? We are meant to see the greatness, the power, the creative wisdom of God when we look at this creation detail. And that will be fleshed out as we look here at this second report, the detailed, daily detailed report, starting in chapter 1, verse 2. So read along with me. 
The earth was without form, it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This opening verse here, verse 2, is kind of a summary of what he starts off with. God created the earth, the earth was without form and void. There was darkness on the face of the water, face of the deep. We understand that to be water. The Spirit is hovering over water. So the earth was created unfinished. Day one, it began, but it was unfinished. It was without form. It was void. There's darkness. There's water. The, the heavens aren't even pictured here specifically in day one. The earth is there, and it's unfinished. And there are some negative connotations to, to those things. That there's chaos. There's disorder. And so the first thing God does is he brings about order, the opposite of chaos and disorder. There's a connotation of negativity with darkness, and we see that throughout the rest of Scripture, that darkness is associated with sin and evil. So there's darkness here at the beginning of the earth, and God will go about shaping and putting that into order. So we see the first thing he does on day one is he creates light. The opposite of darkness is light, and he separates those two. There's this term that you'll see keep coming up. He separates, he makes a distinction between the light and the dark. Then day two, uh, he separates the waters. Now, there's an interesting This is one of the things I think is most unclear in this creation narrative, that he's separating water from waters. And I think this is something that probably remains to be understood by us uh, when when time is all done. But he's separating water from waters. And what does he put in between us? It says he puts the expanse in between these two different waters. And the expanse, also called the firmament, he, he then names that as heaven. He calls it heaven. So he's putting heaven between these two waters. We also understand there are three meanings for heaven. We're told that the birds fly in the firmament, in the expanse. So there's a a sense in which heaven is the atmosphere. We have that first heaven. Then we're also told that the sun and moon and stars are put in the firmament. That's in space, outer space. That's the, the second layer of heaven. And then we're told later in scripture that Paul ascended to the third heaven, which is God's residence. Now, it's a little unclear if God is saying, his residence, heaven, the third heaven, is being created here or not. Um, but at the very least, we understand that the first two heavens are being put between these two waters. Again, I don't know what that means, that there is water on the outside of created space. Um, maybe that is yet to be d- discovered and understood at the end of time. But whatever it is, he's put, he created heavens, the first two heavens, by making this space, creating this expanse. That is what is happening here. There's this distinction then between the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. And I think by implication, because even if the third heaven isn't in play here, we understand there's a distinction between where God resides and where man resides. Day three, we also see this separation happening, this distinction being made. God is separating the the waters that are below, 
from the land. There's this separation happening. And again, there's this, a negative connotation to water. Not entirely. We understand water is necessary for life, but not too much water, right? What happens if you have too much water? You have the flood. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Uh, that's a sign of judgment and condemnation. Uh, when we are baptized, we are fully immersed in water, which is a sign of death. When God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he led them through the Red Sea. He separated the water so that they could go to life on the other side, and then he brought the waters back in judgment on uh, the Egyptians. So there's this negative connotation for water. Water is separated, so there's now land, and there's now a place for man to live. There's not just darkness, now there's light. There's not just earth. The earth and heavens are separated. We can't live in darkness. We can't live in the heavens and space. We can't live in water. Now there's a place for man to live. And at the end of this, this is the first time we hear God say, it was good. He didn't say that after the end of day one or day two, but now that he's shaped and ordered everything, now he says, it is good. It is ready And then he moves into the second phase, starting here in the middle of day three, where he's going to then fill the earth, fill the earth that he has prepared. So read with me, chapter one, uh, verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to his kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. He's now filling the earth that he ordered. He's decorating it almost in a sense. He's populating it, but with beautiful things. We have these astronomical bodies now. We have plants and animals and humans. We didn't read that here, but that's the next part of this detailed account. There's variety and there's beauty. And again, God's creative wisdom on display. We have have nebula and pulsars. We have orchids and fruit trees. We have birds of paradise and strong, powerful predators. God's creative wisdom on display. You'll note, though, this is a new phase of creation. God is not creating out of nothing at this point. It's not ex nihilo. He is creating these things from the existing matter. He is asking the waters and the earth to then produce the things that that populate them. Uh, So he's, he's drawing these things out of what he's already created. I don't know if that means much more than that, uh, but it's worth noting. Why is God doing this? Why is he populating and decorating the earth that he created? 
It's all for his glory. Excuse me. Read on with me, Genesis, the rest of these verses. Verse 29. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens, continuing on in chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. After looking at everything God had done, he says, behold, it is not just good, it is very good. Who is he saying this to? I think for one, he's saying to himself, uh, but it's written down for us to know. God is publicly congratulating himself, right? And it's not that he shouldn't do that. It's wrong for us to do that because we don't deserve glory for our actions. God does deserve glory, and so he draws attention to his own glory. It's also not that he just happened to discover, huh, that's good. God set out to create what was good, and then he said, this is good. And by that, he is setting the standard for what is good. He created it the way it was supposed to be created, and it is now the measure of what is good. Created order. And because of that, God rested. And one of the commentators noted what is described here in chapter 1, in verse 2930 there, he's talking to man and and animals about what they can now eat and the commentator says i think we should appreciate this as baptists it's like god is finishing and celebrating with a meal right he's sitting down he's he's inviting the plants or the animals and the humans to celebrate with him by eating and then he rests on the seventh day this is for his glory not just to self-congratulate but so that creation itself would see the splendors of creation. God created things to see how amazingly he created things. Maybe that doesn't make sense, but that's why God created. He brought us into existence just so that he could display his creative genius to the things that he created in his creative genius. It's for his glory. Let's look at that a little bit more here as we move on into the last report, the focus details, special creation of man. So chapter 2, starting, I'm sorry, we'll read the verses we skipped, chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. Then God said, again words, let us make man in our image. These are wonderful words of life. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If I could take an aside there. I know this is describing men, male and female humans, but it's consistent in the rest of creation. I was helping my dad work cattle yesterday, and we had to change some of them from being bulls into being steers. And there is a very definite difference between male and female. He definitely created them, male and female. 
Okay, resuming our narrative here, verse 28. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's the summary of God creating. That's in the daily narrative. Get into chapter 2. It zooms in and describes this in greater detail. So move on to chapter 2, verse 7 with me. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the description of a specific, real, historical person, a man named Adam. This is how he started. But it's also a narrative of all of humanity beginning. This is the start of all of us. This is where our life begins, where God gave us life. God is the giver of life to us, and it started here with Adam. He's taking special care to create humankind here. It doesn't happen just the same way as the stars and the plants and the animals. It says he was formed out of the dust of the ground. There's design here. But then it goes one step further. It says he breathed into him the breath of life. There's no other part of creation that has that description. He breathed into him the breath of life. And there's a connotation that there's a a different kind of life happening here than the plants and the animals. It's a different kind of living, not just sentient beings, but this is God-breathed life. And that gets to the idea that we read about in verse 26, that man is created in God's image. This is different from the rest of creation. This is not the same as animals who then reproduce after their kind, and so then God is now creating man in his own image. There's a heresy that is taught that that is what God is saying here, that in the same way that elephants reproduce elephants after their kind, God is now producing man after his kind, the implication being that we are gods created in God's image. That's not what's being entertained here. This is image. This is not kind. This is reflection. This is what you see in the mirror. What you see in the mirror is not an exact copy of you. It's just a representation of you. That's not actually another person of you in the mirror, right? That's just a reflection of you. And we are meant to be a reflection to the rest of creation and to ourselves of some of what God is like. We are created in the image of God. And there are many, many things that have been written, theologies and commentaries, that expand on what is meant by being created in the image of God. And there are lots of really good answers to that. But I want to just look at what happens here in Genesis to understand when God says he creates man in his image, what are we supposed to see here? First of all, the very next phrase is, let them have dominion. Let's create man in our image, let them have dominion. Dominion over the rest of creation is something that is an image of God, in the same way that God creates and then rules over his world, he's now extending and delegating some of that dominion mandate to man. That's part of what is meant by being created in the image of God. It's there in verse 26, then God repeats that to Adam in verse 28. Uh, some describe this as Adam and Eve being the vice regent of earth, the, the under king, under God, the king himself. Uh, We see this played out in Adam naming the animals down in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. We're told that God brought all the animals to Adam to name them. 
And that is him doing what God did. In chapter 1, we read how God named everything. God named the, the day and the night, the light and the dark, the heavens and the earth. God named those things, and now that he's delegated and created man to have dominion, now Adam is naming things. We even see in chapter 3 that he names Eve. He gives the name to Eve. We don't have a name for her up to that point. That is one of the things that is meant by the image of God. Another one is that man is created to work. We read in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. The same way that God did work in creation, now he is asking man, he is making man to work. That is a good thing. We are created to work. Work is not a result of the fall. We are created to work it, to keep it. He is put in the garden, which means there is something outside the garden that is not garden, right? God's order and perfect creation is not finished. And he asks and creates man to work it and to extend that garden over the rest of the earth, to work it, to subdue it, we read in verse 28, to subdue the rest of the earth and tame it to be like what God's created order is in the garden. We also read that he is to keep it, he is to defend it. This is the same word used of the cherubim who then defend the Garden of Eden from Adam and Eve after they are expelled in chapter 3. Adam was created to keep it and defend it from what? Probably from the serpent. We'll get to that next week. I think another important thing that we understand here about the image of God is that we are created to be revelation receivers, to hear God and understand what he says to them, to to us. Chapter 1, verse 28 says, he blessed them and he spoke to them. He spoke to people. He also spoke to the animals, but we don't see the animals responding. Animals don't talk back to God. In chapter 1, verse 28, God spoke, and we see Adam speaking in chapter 2. In verse 23, he's, he's naming the animals, and then he speaks and, uh, in praise of the creation of his wife. He speaks back to God who speaks. But it's more than that. We will get into the narrative next week, chapter 3, where Eve understands what God says and interprets it. We receive revelation from God. As smart as dolphins and monkeys and maybe crows are, I guarantee you they're not having this same conversation today. They're not receiving revelation from God. We are created to do that. So there is, we're looking at this, this distinction between man and all of the rest of creation. We are still in the category of created things, but we are set apart from the rest of created things. Another important thing that we notice here is that God created them male and female. And we see that being described in chapter 2. God looks at Adam and he says, verse 18, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And jump down to 21. So the Lord Lord God caused a deep sleep, sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up with its place with flesh. And the rib that God that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Again, separated from man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They're both created in the image of God, but they are distinct. Eve was separated from Adam, taken out of Adam. 
One of the commentators I read said this, Eve is of the very stuff of Adam, and yet a wholly new being, different from Adam. There's a lot we could say here. This is the basis, these few verses, the basis of our understanding of gender, our understanding of our gender roles. God set them up, baked them into the order of creation. They're not flexible. They're not individually discerned. This is our understanding of marriage and sexuality and the design and the intent and the limits that God has placed on that. These are determined by God. And at the end of this, it is after all of this is created, we then read at the end of chapter one, God saw everything that he created and it was very good. The beginning matters. Understanding what God created, when, why, how. The beginning matters. I don't know if you've read or understood anything about ongoing archaeology, maybe, maybe from Indiana Jones or something like that. Uh, but at the very least, I think you probably understand that archaeology, when they discover something, there is a, a great likelihood that when they go and discover something, they don't know what it is. <laughs> they dig and they expose these ruins, and it takes long, long time to understand what it is because they're starting at the end of the story, right? They're working their way back and then they find this thing and they jump into somewhere in the middle of the story, wherever these ruins are, and they don't know what it is because they have not been able to understand the beginning of the story. A similar, th similar thing happens in our world when secular world or even believers who are not engaged, engaging with God's word misunderstand who we are. There, there's been lots of talk, especially in a political season like this, about how we're supposed to live, what our culture should be, what should be like, what should be the right way to treat people, what should be the right way for governments to operate. Same thing happens in our secular world uh, with psychology, when there are questions about how is this be person behaving, what is afflicting them. When there are discussions of depression or anxiety, the, the, the description or the diagnosis of depression or anxiety is a statement that this person is more depressed or anxious than they should be. But the question that rests with all of those statements is, how do we know what we should be? Secular ideas of, of culture or how humans should behave or secular ideas of psychology, what should be normal for us, are just guesses unless you know what a normal human being is. You may only have, well, you, you're anxious because you're more anxious than the average person. But that may not be helpful because that may change over time. God's word tells us what a normal human being is supposed to be. Apart from God's word, we don't know what normal is to measure anything against it. God's word tells us what we were created to be, how we were supposed to live. And it's only when we understand that we can rightly diagnose ourselves and our societal ills and then prescribe a solution. If we don't know what normal is, huh, then that's a hopeless thing. So I wanna look at this. What is normal life supposed to be for us? Three things here. Summary is God dwelling with man who worships and obeys and stewards, excuse me. Let's take that first phrase here, God dwelling with man. 
We understood God created heavens and earth. There's this distinction between heavens and earth. Man lives on earth. God lives in heaven. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. But then God creates Eden. There's, there's these distinctions, heaven and earth. But God created Eden. We read in verse 8 of chapter 2. He put the man there whom he had formed. We read in chapter 3, verse 8, that God is also there. They were afraid because the presence of the Lord was among the trees of the garden. In between these places of God's dwelling and man's dwelling, God created Eden, where man could dwell with God. And that's a pattern that we see. All of these distinctions, these things that God has separated, he harmonizes. Man and women, women was taken out of man, but then he puts them back together in one flesh in marriage. Creator, creation, we're not creator, but we stand apart from creation as well in the image of God. And so we stand between creator and creation in a sense. We're not in the category of creator, uh, but we're somewhere in the middle. And we get this view here too. Somewhere between heaven and earth, God wants to dwell with man in relationship. And that relationship has Godward orientation and an earthward orientation. First of all, this should be described Godwardly by worship and obedience. We dwell with God. Our Godward orientation is worship and obedience. We're told in Revelation 4 that for all time we will praise God for his creation. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We should worship him even just for his creation, but for more than that. We also should obey. There is order. God created the earth and all of creation with order and structure. It is not after the fall that God gives us limitations and definitions and boundaries. God created it. It's baked into creation. Animals reproduce after their kinds. A cow can't just decide to produce a goat. There is order. The heavenly bodies were given to us for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And I think that's why we understand the literal days, because it, it's a, a measure of controlling time. We understand a year is the time it takes for the earth to go around the sun. A month is the time it takes for the uh, moon to go around the earth. And a day is the time it takes for the earth to rotate once. God gave that to us for order. We don't have a heavenly body that tells us the week, but we get that from God himself, the created days, six days, and on the seventh he rested. He also says several times he created it and then it was so. This is the, the implementation and the solidifying of the laws of nature. So there are these other separations we've talked about, God taking things apart, separating them. We can't live wherever we want. We can't live in the waters. We can't live in total darkness. We can't live in the expanse and the sky and the heavens. We can't be other created beings. We're distinct from them. We can't be other genders. We have limitations. And those are good things for us. This is not something that God gave in response to sin. This is good order that God has given us. So part of original creation is that we dwell with God, original life, and we worship and obey him. The other part of that is earthward. I'm sorry, I don't want to skip this. Those are those, the order and the limitations baked into creation. And then God gives a specific command, chapter 2, verse 9. He tells the man, of the tree of life, you shall not eat. Sorry, that's not the right verse. 
uh, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Even before sin, God is giving an explicit command, a law, do not do this. And what is the result? Death. See the first death of man in chapter 4, but death was spoken of and understood even in the Garden of Eden, because God created order and structure. We cannot do whatever we want. We're created beings. We have limitations, and they are good for us. So then earthward, our response should be stewardship. We're supposed to have dominion. We're supposed to bring all things into subjection and continue to extend the order that God created over the rest of the earth. But I think you understand, most of you already know the rest of the story. We'll get into it next week. Chapter 3, man immediately fails at his created design. And there are a lot of things that are meant by that. But one of the things that is meant by that is that Adam left this command unfulfilled. He did not extend order over the whole earth. And so we have this unfinished earth of chaos. There's still darkness on this earth. And there is not the rest that God got to enjoy at the end of his work. Because our work is not done. God gets to enjoy rest at the end of his creation week. And it is eternal. There's no evening and morning on it. But we've not yet entered into that rest because of our sin. I don't know about you. I like rest. Sunday. Day for naps. Lord willing, I will get a nap today. Uh, As many of you probably will too. But guess what? There's an end to that nap. And there's an end to Sunday. And then Monday comes. And we do not yet experience rest because our labors are done. That is why we get to Jesus in the New Testament who was called the second Adam. And there are a lot of things that are meant by that, but I just want to focus on how Jesus comes and fulfills what Adam failed to do, not just in obedience and other things, but he promises to come and finish the work of Adam to extend God's order and rule and peace all over the earth. It's not yet been done, as this last week of political turmoil has displayed. It's not yet done, but he has promised, and he has also planted his flag in the ground, saying on the cross he has done what is necessary for that to be accomplished, where he will bring peace and God's rule to the entire earth. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 4, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Maybe you don't know of that rest. Of course, there's a lot more to talk about than just the rest aspect of that. Maybe you don't understand what is at play here in original creation and then the fall that we get into next week. I invite you to consider how to have rest in this life. Rest from your work. Rest from the striving against the broken world. There's also this final verse in Hebrews chapter four. For those of us who do know that rest in Jesus, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If we know that that rest is promised, let us not make the same errors over and over that Adam and Eve did to bring about this situation. Let us live in order with God, in obedience to what he has created us, in the limitations he has given for our good, let us not fail to enter that rest.
pray, and then we'll continue to praise God for his good creation and strive to live for that rest. God, we thank you for the wisdom that is on display in your created world. Thank you for your goodness to us, giving us life. And God, even though we know that we are not living in the same world you created, thank you for the hope in Jesus that we can enter rest and that we can live according to your order even now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.